0: Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. Uh, And thanks for joining us at the Page One podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about uh, their writing career, their process, how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips as possible. Um, We are back after a short break. Um, I hope you had a good Christmas and New Year period or as good as it can be in in the time of COVID. Um, And we did put up some stuff for you to listen to and get distracted by. Uh, we put the audio of our video podcast, the Page One Sessions, which are sort of chats with multiple authors um, about about uh, their writing. Um, so you can find those in the back catalogue as well as all of our previous guests. So please do check that out. What about you, Tarrant? Did you have a good Christmas and New Year?
1: Yeah, it was very nice. It was um, very quiet. Yeah. Very, the quiet of different. New Year, I'm certain I could think of very well with... Kind of sat up, I think we watched a movie and then played a board game and then it got to midnight and I was like, right, yeah, i fine to go to bed now.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just <laughs> forcing yourself to stay up.
1: It's not really the same, is it, when you're just kind of staying up for the sake of it?
0: No, exactly. Um, yeah, no, but it was, I suppose, it's it, it, in a way, it was nice to have a different sort of uh, thing going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. You
1: know? I've never, to be honest, I'm not really a massive new, I'm more of a Christmas guy than yeah, a new year mm-hmm, guy. so.
0: Definitely. Yeah. You know. It was good not to have that pressure to find a great party or something like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or turn up at the pub at like half past 11. Yeah, exactly. Standing at the bar.
0: Standing that. outside in the street, freezing cold, <laughs> watching that's fireworks.
1: Anyone, anyone that not no Marco, that's Marco's biggest fear is standing outside in the cold.
0: Yep, that's true. Uh, I'm not sure fear is the right word, but certainly <laughs> dislike perhaps
1: <laughs> never seen a grumpier man stand round the bonfires More, <laughs> <laughs> multiple occasions
0: um but anyway uh, we, we are into a new year of course and of course there is uh, still madness going on but we we like to try and distract you uh, from that for about an hour a week um, and we've got a great guest for you this week
1: we do indeed this week we are chatting with sharon Bolton or S.J. Bolton as she uh, is also known in some of her books. She's a crime author. She's had a a number of books out now. Her latest is The Split which was a Richard and Judy book club pick which is very exciting. I think it was one of the Probably the one, of the, one of the largest kind of boosts you can really get to your books. Yeah, definitely in the UK, it's yeah, it's, sure. it's sort of
0: the uh, equivalent of the sort of Oprah Wimpy book list yeah, or book club or whatever right. it is. Um, so yeah, it, it's a big thing to be picked for that. Um, and uh, yeah, she's, she's as you say, she's written a, a series of crime novels, sort of, uh, not supernatural crime, but you know, they're always, it's not your straight laced crime, I would say. Yeah. There's always a hint of something else, even if it even if there isn't actually supernatural elements, as she talks about. And she's written a, both standalone books and a, sort of a series, a recurring series with a character called Lacey Flint, uh, which is very popular. And she talks to us about um, bringing Lacey Flint back, which I think uh, will be great news to, to a lot of people because she is a popular character. Yeah. So we'll get straight into the podcast after a quick advert for our notebook, the page one notebook. Uh, and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's guest.
1: On the podcast.
0: The blank page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow.
2: But
1: what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those top thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning.
0: As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings.
1: Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying or a document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realised it's not just a story that needs structure and planning but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well.
0: And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project. Divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story, so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realise you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions.
1: Each one is designed for one project. Whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic, or any other kind of story, we truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps.
0: We can't wait to read what you come up with.
1: And remember, every story starts with page one.
0: Did you always want to be a writer? Was that always your goal?
3: No, no. Um, For the longest time, it never occurred to me that I could do it. And looking back, I almost want to sort of slap my forehead and go, duh, because all the signs were there. I've always had a very active imagination. I'm one of those people that have another life, a much more exciting one going on in their heads. Um, And I've always read um, massively. And and for a long time, my job involved writing. It wasn't writing fiction. I was was working in public relations. So Mm -hmm. I was writing press releases and advertising copy and that sort of thing. Um, so for 15 years, you know, I was, I was developing my skill as a writer about u- learning to use words to best effect.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, but I still didn't join the dots until um, one day. And this story is so embarrassing. I wish I could stop telling it. But, you know, <laughs> I had to invent something then. Um, I, I was working in, um, in financial services and I took a journalist out to lunch. And he was a lovely chap. He worked for the Mail on Sunday. He didn't want to talk about life insurance and pensions, and neither did I. So we just got to chatting and he told me he'd just taken a week off work to write a novel for Mills and Boone. And he said they pay £15,000 per novel for 50,000 words, £15,000 for 50,000 words that he thought he could do in a week. That's a journalist for <laughs> you. Um, this was quite a long time ago. and I thought, oh, gosh, that's a lot of money. And I had a big student loan at the time. I thought I could really use fifteen thousand pounds. So by the time I got home that night, I had the plot of a Mills and Boone novel all <laughs> in my head. Um, and I, I sort of took my laptop upstairs to my bedroom, and I'd started writing this Mills and Boone novel. And it was like falling off a log; it just came pouring out. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I never actually had anything accepted by Mills and Boone. And if you've read my books, you'll probably think that's a very good thing. <laughs> it would change the much-loved genre beyond all recognition. Um, but that was the start of the process for me. That was when I learned that I could do it. Mm-hmm. And that actually, I really enjoyed doing it. Um, I, so... From that from that moment on, it became a bug, and I knew what you know. I would have to keep on trying to write fiction and trying to get published. And so,
0: and, it that, that your first book was that sort of Mills and Boone type story. It, did you then think, right, what what do I, what do I want to write about now, and and move yeah. into that path?
3: I mean, you you two will both know this. You have to write the sort of book you love to read. And I've never really loved romantic fiction, Um, so I was doing that for money. And it's not surprisingly it didn't work. Um, So I had to wait for the right story to come along. And and it wasn't too long in coming because um, a little while after that, my sister and her family bought a plot of land by an old church on the moors in Lancashire. They wanted to build their dream house. But of course, when you buy land next to a church you're buying land next to a graveyard. And that's what their house overlooks to this day. Um, And and I went up to stay with them quite early on um, in in, in their sort of um, residence there. And and one morning I I got up quite early. um, I took my niece downstairs for breakfast and it was dark outside and the mist was um, rising over the graveyard. Oh, this is a spooky place. (laughs) This is a good place to set a novel. And shortly after that, they found human remains in their back garden. And they learned that churchyard boundaries can move over time um, because churches are usually hundreds of years old Mm. um, and that it's not unusual for bones to pop up on the wrong side of the wall. Um, They also learned that if, if bones are more than 100 years old, they're just put back in the ground and forgotten about. But if they're not, then a police investigation will kick in. Well, these were obviously very old, so they were buried and that was that. But that got me thinking... Could there be a better place in the world to hide a body than a graveyard? And just suppose in, in a heavy storm, um, a churchyard wall collapses, the graves behind it open up and more bodies come out than are supposed to be in there. Mm-hmm. So that was the start of, of a book that eventually became Blood Harvest. And, and, and that was what really sort of set me going on the right path.
0: And did you, uh, what was the process in terms of getting that published? Did you, did you, you know have to search a long time for an agent or did you find it quite easy to to find that it was path? long
3: and hard i i wrote it as a ghost story mm-hmm. um and i made so many mistakes i wrote it as a 250,000 word right. ghost story now you both know commercial fiction probably 100,000 words that's yep. the maximum they're looking for so it, nobody wanted to publish a, a book of that length um And and it really was a rookie novel. Um, So I I, I sent it off to every agent in the book and every agent in the book sent it back. And I almost gave up at that point. But I had another idea that by this stage, a sort of um, the idea of a woman who really wanted to be pregnant and who conceived something that somehow brings about her downfall. Um, And... um, I thought, you know, I want to write this story. I'm just going to give it one last go. So I wrote that book, um, which eventually became Sacrifice. And it took quite a long time because I had a young child myself at this stage. um, And he wasn't a great sleeper. So I was writing around him. Um, So I started work while I was pregnant. And um, just when he went to primary school, um, I I got an agent. And the book went to the Frankfurt Book Fair.
2: Hmm
3: and um it was auctioned there um and it ended up selling you know for quite high figures figures um to, to publishers all around the world um so finally then i'd had the big start that we all dream about but yeah. it yeah i had to work quite hard for it
1: yeah, i mean it sounds like that's quite a that's a five-year gap or so then from writing yeah. sacrifice to really to get it picked up at the frankfurt fair i mean
3: it was, was, t- was that- probably took the better part of five years to write it. Right. Because I was writing around a, a very young child. So, you yeah. know, days and days would go by when I just didn't get the chance. Um, and in, a, in many ways that worked in my favour because Sacrifice um, and, and the sort of book I write, they're quite fantastical thrillers. There's an element of, uh, they're very strongly gothic thrillers. Mm-hmm. There's an element of, not the supernatural, but a, a hint of the, that, that something a little bit weird could be going on. Um, and I think if I'd written Sacrifice in a year and pitched it in sort of 1996, it would have been rejected because the market wasn't looking for books like that at mm-hmm. that time. But by the time 2000 and ooh, I don't know, I've got my years mixed up, but by the time I did come to, to, to send it off, um, I'd, ha- I'd had a lot of luck because Dan Brown had taken the world by storm with his you know very Mm -hmm. sort of um, his religious thrillers and so Mm -hmm. suddenly publishers were looking for books that were a little bit different yeah that were thrillers that were exciting that had an element of crime in them but were just had a bit of a fantastical twist which seemed to describe sacrifice very well so it was the right book at the right time you know there's a huge amount of luck in publishing Mm -hmm. yeah it really is
0: yeah I mean that 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 process of you know um, sending out to agents and being rejected. It's um, so destroying. Yeah, absolutely. And it can make a lot of people uh give up at that point because, you know, they just can't see the way through it to, to you know, should they stick at it because writing a book of course isn't something that you do on a couple of evenings. It takes a long time, it's a long commitment and then to have no um no success, no not sometimes not even any real feedback on it, it can be quite disheartening I think.
3: Absolutely, yes. Um, for most people who are not writing full time, it will take several years mm-hmm. to finish that book. Um, so to start that process for the second or the third time with, with no hope of a destination in sight, um, it, it's it's hard. It takes a particular sort of person, frankly, mm-hmm. to keep yeah. doing it.
1: <laughs> and you, I mean, obviously, because you, you, you said that you started writing Blood Harvest as your kind of first serious crime book that, that, that you wrote but then that was am I right saying that was your third book that mm, actually did yes. end up coming out so obviously you kind of put that away in a drawer and said right I'm going to go into sacrifice but then down the line you pulled it back out and said I've got this book which I'll do some work on but it's pretty much ready to go almost is that is that quite That's a good exactly, thing having that book exactly a what
3: happened yes yeah. I was kind of struggling for an idea for my third book um and so I went back to the the first book I ever wrote. I thought, you know, there is a story here. Mm-hmm. I've got to strip out all the ghosts. I've got to make it a lot shorter. But the characters, the setting, the, the you know, the, the, the underlying story of the, the, the lost little girls and the graves that, that have more bodies in them, that, that there's a story here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I rewrote it and it became Blood Harvest.
0: And, and when Afterwards, you were... When you were first published, uh, I, I was reading about this earlier today. You were you were S. J. Bolton as opposed to Sharon Bolton. Um, and do, you, do you want to tell us why that was and and um, why it's changed since then?
3: Pub- publishing decisions both times. Mm-hmm. Um, back in gosh, two thousand and six, I think I had the the um, my sacrifice was offered a, a publishing contract. And my editor said, we, we love this book, but we think if we publish you as Sharon Bolton, a lot of men won't pick it up. Because um, at the time, apparently, um, men in the United Kingdom were quite reluctant to buy a book with a woman's name on the cover, especially in, in this genre, um, which was very much uh, not the case in, in other European countries because I sold in Germany very quickly mm-hmm. where they liked nothing better than a really nasty book written by a woman. <laughs> so on the, con- on, in, in, in lots of European countries, I was Sharon Bolton from the outset. Mm-hmm. Um, but my British publishers thought it would be better to, to, to do a bit of a JK Rowling and trying to disguise my, um, my genre, my genre, no, gender, <laughs> gender. Um, so we published as SJ Bolton and, um, But things changed. Um, Social media really took off. Um, So in the years following Sacrifice coming out, um, I had a website. I was on Twitter. I was blogging. um, I was on Facebook. It was blindingly obvious that I was a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, And another thing was going on. Lots of people were publishing with their initials. And strangely, J is a very popular middle initial. (laughs) Um, So there was so, I felt I was getting lost in a sea of, you know, SJs and CJs. Um, So um, around about my fifth book, sixth book, um, the publisher said, look, maybe it's time to come out and admit that you're female. Um, So we'll (laughs) change. You know, they were trying to give a big push to the new book. Um, So that's that's the story behind Mm -hmm.
1: that. It it sounds so strange, even because you know, it wasn't that long ago when your books came out to, to think even back then that that was a kind of that was a viewpoint in the UK you know, it almost makes you think of back in the Victorian times when you had to take a fake a man's name to put, to hide the fact that you you were a woman and yeah it's, it's it's interesting to see that the kind of catalyst for that change was the fact that actually comes a point when you can't hide that anymore and well
3: exactly <laughs> unless
2: yes. you're
1: going to start having a fake social media account to try and keep up for pretense I but know, it however.
3: is it is a real thing um, because I've had people come onto my Facebook page and say, or, or on Amazon and say that you know they don't buy books written by women, really, because, because women they spend too much time talk writing about feelings instead of just getting on <laughs> with it. <laughs> you no, know, it's it's a point of view. If that's the sort of book you like, you know, read the authors who don't bother too much. <laughs>
1: Interesting. And uh, am I right to say that you, you made up the G? You don't actually have a middle name G, that was just a, a yeah, letter. Just,
3: it, it all seemed to be happening very quickly. Maybe I panicked a bit. I just thought, they're doing too.
0: And um, your books are all uh, sort of set in the same, or, or not all of them, because we'll come on to your, your new book uh, very shortly, but um, a lot of your books are, are based in uh, Northern England. Uh, where you're from is that something is that part of you know the sort of cliche of, of, of write what you know do you think it's important to have a grounding in this type of stories that you you know in the location of the type of stories you want to tell
3: um I think the opposite right. <laughs> I know I, um and I'm not sure most of my books are set in northern England mm. some of them are certainly yeah. um but if anything I find that harder um to write it's harder to write about an area I know extremely well mm-hmm. um no I, I don't I, all authors fall into two camps on this there are some who say you absolutely have to visit your book locations yeah. mm-hmm. you have to do your research thoroughly um, you have to tick every box um, and it's a point of view but it's not one that I subscribe to um, I I think there is so much material on the internet and in previously published works, both fiction and Mm -hmm. non-fiction. There's a a whole um, library of knowledge available on on YouTube with with video programs that have been produced. Um, You can learn as much as you need to about a location um, without visiting yourself. Yeah. Um, And two, uh, I wrote Sacrifice without going to the Shetland Islands Mm -hmm. because um, I had a very young baby and... Um, we were living on one income at the time. It was an expensive trip. I just couldn't justify it. Uh, when it sold, started selling around the world, I thought, "Bloody hell, I better get up there." Um, <laughs> so I, I did follow the, the route of the book around, um, yeah. just checking that I've got everything right. Um, so I would, I would set that. That's the way I prefer to work—to to write from research and imagination. Mm-hmm and then visit at the end of the process to check. Now, two books, including the one that you're going to ask me about shortly, um, have been set on opposite sides of the the world. So I I haven't been able to visit those. So is is
0: research, uh, uh, you know, do you spend a long time doing research into your novels? You know, what is that process? Do you get an idea and then spend a lot of time researching it? Or do you just sort of have the kernel of the idea and start writing and see where it takes you. What no, no, no. what approach do you have?
3: Um I like to have three ideas before I start work on a book. Okay. One doesn't feel like enough, but three that can be completely disparate mm-hmm. initially. Um and, and then once I start to see how they can fit together. I think yes this this could work that's when I start the research and I might spend two to three months researching before um before I start work um, so I might start off with the location because that's an easy one mm-hmm. if I've decided what sort of profession my main characters um are in I will research how they go about their daily lives what how they do their jobs um, if there's a particular mental condition that um, I'm going to explore, I'll I'll read all about that. And and as I'm doing that, I'm making notes and and I'm getting ideas for further bits of research and I might start to have ideas for for plot developments and for how a chapter can can work and maybe maybe even I'll get snatches of dialogue as I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. So at the end of this process, I've got a fairly detailed plan that I can work to, um, that, that I can use to structure the novel.
1: I mean, you've sorry, oh, sorry, no, no, you go. I um, mean, you have these uh, kind of ideas. You've got three ideas, and you say, you know, I'm going to work I can build these up in, in, into a full book. Where, where does the where does the idea itself come? The first idea come from? Because I think I think I read somewhere that you, you can get inspiration from like an area, like the Moors Murders, Yorkshire Ripper, etc. For or that kind of location can inspire something. But you know, how do you tend to find that first spark of an idea to, that takes you off on your journey?
3: Um, it is often something out of the ordinary in ordinary life that strikes me. Um, So to give you an example, I was sitting in Waterstones in Manchester a couple of years ago, meeting one of the booksellers there. Um, And at the opposite side of the room, um, at a corner of my eye, I could see a couple. And the man uh, was... um, playing with the woman's hair and he was doing this all the time they were talking and, and I must have been there for a good half hour and he was constantly playing with her hair twirling it around in his fingers I thought bloody hell that's creepy stop it <laughs> um but that, that that has stayed with me ever since and, and maybe one day that will be one of mm-hmm. the three ideas that mm-hmm. eventually come mm-hmm. together um I'll just give you another example um I lived very close to Oxford and a few years ago there was a dreadful car accident on the the, the Oxford ring road um, when a a woman had um, was taking children home from a party and she overfilled her car so there were children in the car who didn't have a seatbelt. something happened there was a dreadful accident and a number of the children were either killed or badly injured and I I mean and that's the sort of thing that stays with you for a very long time and the worst of it was that the mother was friends with the mothers of all the children mm-hmm. who'd been hurt awesome. in the car. How do you ever come to terms with the fact that you might've killed your best friend's child? I and mean, so that story, that idea eventually became Little Black Lies. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so it's, yeah, the so things that strike me as, being a little bit out of the ordinary interesting and of course the book isn't fully formed straight no. away um, I'll have to file that idea away and sort of let it uh, mull over it in my subconscious possibly for years mm. um, but th- there they should come a time when I can see how it could work
1: yeah. yeah I suppose if you've got that kind of snatch of something you know like someone playing with someone's hair or a story that stayed with you if it stays with you for long enough there's the reason why it's yes, exactly. this, um, yes. yeah,
3: people exactly. say you should carry a notebook everywhere. Well, mm. I'm just not that organized. Yeah. Um, but I think if I had to write them down, they wouldn't be powerful enough. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I can remember them without doing that, then, then they are.
0: Yeah. So um, your new book is the split, um, which isn't set in the North of England, as I said, um, <laughs> do you want to tell us a bit about that where it's set and, and what it's about?
3: Yes. Well, there is a common theme to my settings because um, I am very much a writer of British mysteries, right? All my settings are British, even the ones that aren't set mm-hmm. in the British Isles, right? Um, so I've set two books overseas. One was in the Falkland Islands, which is a British protectorate. And while I was researching that, I came across this other island, also a British protectorate, some four days' sail away from the Falkland Islands, closer to the Antarctic. It's probably one of the most remote communities on the planet mm-hmm. i can't think of one that is more so it's called the island of south georgia um, where the summer population is something like 25 and the winter population a dozen mainly scientists and um it has the grimmest darkest of histories because for a long time it was the center of the whaling industry mm-hmm. in um in the, in the southern ocean around antarctic um, so there are some four or five stations there. And at one time, a thousand men lived and worked on South Georgia, um, chasing whales, catching whales, um, processing the oil to send back to the northern hemisphere. I mean, so this island practically wiped out the whale population in the Southern Ocean. Um, and Reading the detail about how the whaling industry took place, it's just horrific, it really is. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's an island that's now incredibly beautiful but has this really dark history. It was involved in the Falklands War. Um, Ernest Shackleton, the famous British explorer, has a history there. So lots and lots of interesting stuff Mm -hmm. about it. I I, I, I decided years ago that one day I would write a book on South Georgia um,
0: so that's one of those ideas that you had in yes, your in exactly, your head. South yes.
3: Georgia was waiting. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
0: and and so um, that's the location of it. But do you want to tell us what the the plot?
3: Sure. Of well, book it's is? Um, I conceived it as a classic chase thriller: mm-hmm. woman running away from a man who is threatening in mm-hmm. some way. I'd writ- I've written one of those previously, a-, a book called Dead Woman Walking which was very successful so there is something about that trope that catches the imagination of, of crime readers mm-hmm. they like that so I thought you know, I'll, I'll, I'll write one of those in South Georgia so um, when the book opens we see the main character who is a glaciologist, she's a scientist called Felicity Lloyd and um, she is dreading the arrival of the last cruise ship of the summer season. Because once this ship has come and gone, right, nobody else can get to South Georgia for the next six months. It's winter, boats don't come here, and she knows she's safe. But on this last boat could be her estranged husband, Freddie, of whom she is terrified. She has run to the very ends of the earth to get away from him, right? Um, and, and she cannot relax until she knows whether or not he's on board. Well, spoiler alert, he is. <laughs> um, and we find that out very quickly. Um, so we 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 follow Freddie as he's approaching the island and he lands and he goes off in search of Felicity. And we follow Felicity as she is, she goes into the hinterland of, of the island because she knows it very well, and she's very much at home mm. in this extreme environment, and she believes she can hide. Um, so he's chasing her, her across this frozen wilderness. And at the end of part one, the two of them come together. Now, I knew that when they do, what happens will be a big surprise to the reader. It is not what we're expecting. Right. Um, so that was the idea that started the book. Um, and when I started working on it, I, I didn't know why she was running from Freddie, um, what their history was, what was going on in her head. Um, there were lots of questions that I, I knew the reader would have. Well, well, I have them, too. Yeah. Um, um and that i would knew i would have to sort of answer and explain in part 2 3 and 4
0: excellent and when you, when you're writing, when you're doing a setting like that that's a very enclosed setting you know a, a lot of classic stories as well have that sort of um you know i'm thinking of sort of a, lo- a locked room type yes. setting um where that that and it's the setting itself can Almost become a character and become uh, it adds itself to the the sense of dread and you, you know because you know you can't get out of it you know that this is where the whole story is being told um, you know is it is it fun to write a story with oh, that yes. as a there
3: is a reason why so many crime novels and thrillers are set on islands mm-hmm. they are perfect mm-hmm. um, and I think it's it's partly the sense of of a community apart um, that might have its own. Um, rules and regulations and ways of doing things, um, and it's it's partly that uh, when the sun goes down and the aeroplanes stop flying and the ferries stop sailing, there's no way off. Mm-hmm. And quite often they're quite small communities, relatively few roads and very few houses, and so not many places to hide. And and to that extent, South Georgia is the ultimate island because you can't fly there; mm-hmm. um, it's too far for helicopters. The only way off is on a ship that don't come very often and it will take four days to get to the nearest um, place of civilization. That's the Falkland Islands, which isn't very civilised. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it, if you're going to write about, you know, a claustrophobic, hostile island, you know, I, I'm not sure that you can get much better no, than that doesn't story, sound like
0: it. it but sounds... I'll tell
3: you what I found. It was almost too atmospheric and too um, oppressive a setting. Um, and some readers have have echoed this. They've said they find the part the chapters in part one quite hard to read, mm-hmm. quite intense. And I think I must have had a sense of that while I was writing, because I got to this when when Freddie and Felicity meet, I thought, I've got to get off this island. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's too intense. So we go back in time then, nine months, um, to um an environment that I thought was the most complete opposite to South Georgia and that's the city of Cambridge in the middle of a heat wave mm-hmm. so you have this seat of civilization this this ancient place of learning the most probably most civilized place you can think of um, and it's very hot um, so sharp contrast in the setting but here we find out why felicity was, is the way she is and why she's so frightened of freddie um and and the threat changes here it's not so much external it's more what's going on in felicity's yeah. head
2: mm-hmm.
3: um so the the novel opened out a lot for me in yeah. part two it, it's no longer just the classic chase thriller it's something quite different it becomes much more of a psychological thriller
1: mm-hmm. yeah I, I think when you give a when you a story that's really set in that in one location I think it's difficult to maintain that for a long time because I think it does get oppressive and it's and also I suppose you're limited in what you can physically do you know you're there's not much place you can go or people you can meet whereas
2: Absolutely.
1: I think when you do open up into in, into the into the Cambridge setting it's almost like a release isn't it it's like a yes. you get a bit a bit of a kind of breather and you get a lot more scope to set up the final act yes. etc so yeah I
3: had boxed myself into a corner in the South Georgia setting um, because there are no roads on South Georgia and there's no infrastructure there are no there are practically no buildings it's just ice mm-hmm. and mountains out there. Yeah. there is nowhere else I can go <laughs> um, so it was quite a relief to be able to sort of go to somewhere very different
0: and and when you're writing a story like that that, that obviously it, it has to be well you know I think this is true of all crime novels in in fact that you know they have to be well structured for them to work you know the pacing of it and everything like that I mean do you are you someone that that likes to revise as you write it or do you sort of get to the end of a draft and then say right okay now let's let's fix this bit let's fix that bit what's your oh both both. right
2: okay
3: um I I start every day by going back over what I wrote the previous day and doing a little bit of editing as I go. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly polishing and I find that quite helpful because by the time I get to the end, I'm sort of ready to carry on. Yeah. Um, it's a yeah. good way of introducing myself to the, that day's work. Um, but, but I would also probably do quite a lot of structural changes when I finish the first draft, I'll realize things that aren't quite working. Um, I, I had, yeah, I changed quite a lot um, in the split. Um before I even sent it to my editor, because I realised there, there were just too many... I mean, it's quite a complex idea at the heart of it, which we can't mm-hmm. really talk about, because it will yeah. spoil it for people who haven't read it. But Felicity is suffering from a, from a condition um, that it was quite tricky to manage without yeah. giving too much away. Yeah. And the first draft, I didn't get it. I knew I hadn't got it right, so I had to go back and look at that again. Um, and, and also the, the very first chapter, which introduces her to the reader... Um, I wrote after it, the book had been edited okay. twice. Um, okay, okay. So it, um, the structural work can go on for quite some time yeah. after the first yeah. draft is is done. And and when do you know?
1: We've had this conversation before. When do you know when a book is ready to be shown to someone? You know, how many drafts do you do before you think I can show it to someone? And do you show it to someone at home first to test it, or do you go straight to the editor? No.
3: <laughs> it, it goes. It, it typically goes to my agent first. Right. Um, I sometimes wish she didn't because she's very, very critical. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so my agent will see it first. Um, she might have some suggestions, but um, she's not an editor. Um, she never would never claim to be an editor. So her suggestions um, are a quite light touch. Um, and then the two of us will send it to my editor. Um, so she's the first person to really get their hands on it Mm. and it might go backwards and forwards from me to her two or three times um before we're happy with it and then Mm. the production process starts
0: and and how do you deal with you know again this is we cover this with a lot of our guests but you know the 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 reactions of different people is interesting do you ever get feedback from your editor that you just (laughs) push back on and say no that isn't going to work in this story (laughs)
3: Yes. yes. Um, I liken the editorial process to childbirth. <laughs> Hell to go through, but worth it in the end. Um, because it always produces a better book. Mm-hmm um but but there are my husband and son know to come nowhere near me for a few days after I've had the first editorial report back Mm -hmm. because even though I've decided the book is complete and perfect before I send it off um you know I will inevitably get a a 10 page report back uh, telling me all the ways in which it's not perfect and a lot of it won't make sense at first and I will want to push back Mm um but I've learned um not to do that for at least a few days because over the course of those days I will start to see how some of the suggestions yeah. make sense yeah. and how some of the changes could work and be better. Yeah. Um so I will probably take on board sort of 80% of what my editor said the first time around. Mm-hmm. Um so I'll send back a draft that is much improved and she will be glad that it's much improved. Um, and then she might have a few more suggestions. And that goes on until yeah. there's practically nothing left to change.
0: I, th- I think that's it's probably true for a lot of people because you've, you've been so close to the thing for so long and you've kind of worked through it in your head and you think, right, this is how this works. This is how this is who these characters are. So when you first get that feedback from someone, even if it's someone you respect, like the editor, um, it, it can be. You know, I think it's quite a natural reaction to sort of go. No, wait that, that that's not right. I've been I've been doing this for <laughs> six months. I've been with these people. I I know how this works. Um, but as you say, if you take that, if you sort of take a bit of time away, it it, it does it sort of seep in and say, well, yeah, maybe that that does work actually. Yes. Um, you you've written a few. Uh, you you've written a variety of of novels that are that some are part of a series and some are standalone. Do you have a preference for what what type of novel you write?
3: I have a strong preference for standalone. Right. Because that's what I like to read. Mm. I like a, a story that's complete in itself. And and I think if, if the characters have achieved any sort of happy ending, then we should leave them to get on with it. Now, I, I, how cheated work did we feel... Um, after Aliens, when they did another film, and the happy yeah. ending we thought we had with Ripley and the little girl and the lovely lieutenant just didn't.
1: <laughs> that should have been left as it was. No, 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 it was it was it was ruined. It was ruined off screen before anyone even saw it. It's one of the one of my pet hatreds of Alien Three is the ruining of those characters really? before the film even starts, yes.
3: Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad we see eye to eye on that. <laughs> um, So I have a preference for standalones but I, I did write a series um, I started a few years ago uh, um, with um, a central character a young detective called Lacey Flint mm-hmm. who is hiding a very dark and damaging secret that if it ever comes to light will destroy her and I wrote four Lacey Flint books and they did very well, they were popular and to this day I, I get emails from readers most days saying when are you bringing her back and I've always said it has to be the right story um and I haven't yet had a Lacey Flint story well that's what I've been telling them but um I have now had a Lacey Flint ah. story idea okay, so excellent. the book that I'm working on at the moment that I'm about halfway through the first draft is the Lacey Flint stories so I've gone back to my series um and I'm enjoying it so much it's like finding old friends again yeah
1: Exactly. Is, there, is there pressure on you from the publishing side to to write more in a series? Do they are they quite keen on you writing more because the fans enjoy those books? They know no, what will sell, um, etc.
3: In the beginning, yes, um, I, I was pushed into writing a series by my publishers at the time. Um, they argued that all successful crime writers had a series character, um, so I went along with that. Um, that is not the case now. Standalones are much more fashionable than they were say, six, seven years ago.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, so no, there's no pressure on me at all to, to write a series or um, a standalone.
0: And do you ever, you know, this is a, especially for crime novelists, I think, do you ever have that sort of block of, what am I going to write next? You know, how, how am I going to come up with something original that, that, hasn't, that hasn't been seen before in terms of, in terms of a crime novel?
3: Oh yeah, I uh, all the time. I hear, I hear of, um, I see writers on Facebook saying they've got sort of, you know, dozens of ideas for stories. I think.
1: <laughs> Can I have one, please? <laughs>
3: no, um, and I was, I was getting really worried this year because I was working on um, a different novel that would have been a standalone, um, that I'd argued I wanted to write. I'd got quite excited about the idea, and I'd got fifty thousand words into it, and I thought. I Can't do this, it's just I can't see where it's going to go from here, but I've got nothing else,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, so it's this or nothing. So I was pushing on with it and pushing on with it, it was like pulling teeth. It was, um, and then thank god I had this Lacey Flint idea, um, mm-hmm. and, and it, it's one that I'd been mulling over for a long time. Um, it wasn't a new idea, I thought, like, oh, actually, yes, that, 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 um, but it really was 11th hour stuff, mm-hmm. um no it, yeah. it, it
0: can be i can see that you, particularly in that genre it seems to me that it the pressure to come up with new things all the time must be must be pretty difficult um but yeah fortunately you you were able to to come back yeah. with a different idea it
3: doesn't it doesn't have to be an original idea though no. it can be an an old idea done a different mm-hmm. way absolutely um, it work yeah. very well
0: and and of course, uh, sacrifice was turned into a movie in in twenty sixteen. I think it was. Um, what what was that like? Were you were you excited when that that um, happened?
3: Of course, yes. I mean, well, it's it sold the movie rights sold before it, before it was published, right. So it was probably about eight years between the rights selling and the film being made,
2: mm-hmm.
3: um, and and during that time um, yeah, we went through so many ups and downs. Went so many times we thought the project was over, it wasn't going to happen, mm-hmm. and eventually it did. Um, so yes, there was a moment, there was a period of, of huge excitement when it, it was all coming together, and I flew over to Dublin to watch the filming one day, which mm-hmm. was you. Know, one of the most exciting things that's ever happened to me, it, re, seeing it all come to life yeah, was brilliant. Absolutely. absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it was it was great. It was um, but it doesn't happen very often, sadly. Yeah. I wondered
1: about, I mean, what kind of involvement? I mean, I presume, like most authors, once the rights were bought, you didn't have much involvement with it at all, but did you have any say over anything, or did you get to see um, scripts or go and set?
3: the company that bought sacrifice were, were quite a new st- a startup film company um so they were quite amenable to me being involved particularly in the early stages so okay. i think i had four versions of the script sent to me hmm. and um I, I i did give my own feedback um maybe they weren't quite so keen on the feedback because they stopped sending me
1: this. <laughs> <laughs> is, it, is it quite I mean is it quite is it an exciting thing to see other people take your characters and turn them into you know film versions or is it quite is it quite nerve-wracking you were you worried about them ruining characters or ruining a story that you'd done or was it you're just happy to see someone else run it through their eyes
3: i i was relatively relaxed I, I i knew that the film company would make changes to the story and that that was inevitable because a story that works well in a book will not necessarily work in the yeah, same way absolutely. for example at sacrifice we spend an awful lot of time inside the main character's head and a lot of the time she's sitting at her computer researching well that's not going to work on film yeah. i knew that i knew they'd have to change things um so i was relaxed about that um I particularly loved seeing the actors get involved. Um, It had a very good cast, especially Radha Mitchell as Mm -hmm. the main character. Um, And I was, I was in awe of how much emotion she could put into a single line. And some of the, the, lines that she is were straight out of the novel so Mm -hmm. she was um she wasn't reading at the script writer's lines she was reading mine Mm -hmm. um and that was brilliant that was really nice good to see yeah
0: no it must be an exciting exciting
1: yeah Yeah. Yeah, totally i did like that (laughs) i wrote that
0: (laughs) um um, is would you ever want to try writing a screenplay yourself
2: or yeah and i have done
3: nothing that's ever been taken up Mm -hmm. but um Yeah, I've worked on the, I was a writer attached to um, a Lacey Flint adaptation for a while, um, which hasn't gone anywhere yet. Um, Yeah, I enjoy screenwriting. It's a very, very different discipline. Mm -hmm. I mean, so much white page, blank page, um, and every word has to count. You know, you can waffle in a novel. Yeah. Um, You cannot in a screenplay. Mm -hmm. You you can't waste words. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. it's, it's, It's very different, but I do enjoy it.
1: Thanks. I mean, it's a, it's a. I, th- I think you're right. It's a very different beast, but um, it must be. It's, it's quite a satisfying, and you know, because I, th- I suppose you're in a separate way, you're pushing the focus onto the dialogue more and onto the mm. actions as opposed to this, the inner monologue, which you can really get into in a,
3: in a, yeah.
1: in, a in a story. I met
3: um, in Harrogate a few years ago the writer of "I Am Pilgrim." Oh, all right, I, yeah. Pick, help me out with his name. What was he called? Uh, I've got um. Right. It might come to big me. shelf
0: behind him. Tarek's currently oh,
3: <laughs> oh no,
1: no! I borrowed it from a friend. I don't don't have it. It's not mine.
3: <laughs> the <laughs> minute we stop talking, I will remember. Yeah, exactly. he's a lovely chap, and I had breakfast with him at the Harrogate Film Fest, um, the Harrogate Crime Writing Festival.
1: Teddy Hees.
3: and he's a screenwriter. He, I think, he wrote the Mad Max. Um, All right. Uh, I think.
1: Um, yeah, no. Yeah, he was. He did write some script stuff. Yeah. Was it, it Bourne
3: movies he was involved in as well? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. We'll but just make it up. You know the Bourne movies. Are like. telling me <laughs> the key to a great screenplay is minimum dialogue?
1: All right. Okay. But convey
3: convey what's going on without the characters speaking. Mm-hmm. I thought, ooh! Wow, <laughs> that's going to be a challenge.
0: I mean, yeah, you don't want sort of expository. And no, well, this you is can't. why
3: this it doesn't happens. work yeah, exactly. in a screenplay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You've got to do it through what the characters do. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Um, so try and, you know, a look maybe or. <laughs> a
1: and it was, you're t- I've just had a quick look at him. It is, he He did write uh, Mad Max 2 and 3.
3: But what's his name?
1: Uh, Terry Hees.
3: That's it. Yeah. yeah. Nice chap.
0: Excellent.
1: I, I didn't realize it was a huge. Because, I mean, the I am, I, am, I am Pilgrim was a fairly recent novel, wasn't it?
3: A few years ago now yeah yeah that's, that's a massive massive book
1: yeah um, yeah it's a good one it's
3: good hasn't that's when i can see yeah. being
1: turned into film quite easily I imagine
3: oh i'm sure i'm sure yeah. it will be yeah.
0: um so we've got a a, a Lacey flint novel coming uh, next are you already no
3: not next not next oh is it not
0: is that what you're writing just now okay be. okay so that's <laughs> that's what i was going to ask then so what so I, you've got the split coming out uh, i think it's is it next week as, as we film this, uh, well,
3: it will. The paperback is out tomorrow, the yeah, 22nd, yeah. Um in some shops, uh-huh. and then mass sort of roll out next week.
0: And um, so, this so that's the split. And you've already then got a, another book lined up in for next year, is there one?
3: Yes, yeah, Um Excellent. we try to work a year ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I um, the book that comes out next spring, I'm i would love to tell you the title, but i was no, it was just fine. announced to me yesterday that they changed it
2: oh okay. <laughs> so
3: I'm, not, I'm not entirely sure what the title is anyway. <laughs> um but it's um very much a closed room mystery
2: okay cool
3: in that it's a very small cast of characters. there are only really six main characters, which is very unusual for me mm-hmm. and um when we first meet them, it's the night before they get their a levels. They're the senior prefect team at a prestigious public school in Oxford. Mm. Um, And they're expecting, they've all got places at Oxbridge or Imperial or Durham. They're expecting great grades the following day. But that summer, they've been doing this sort of stupid daredevil stunt. They've all been piling into one car, driving to the nearby motorway, and driving onto the motorway on the wrong carriageway, just for what, just for one junction, and then coming off again. Um, five of them have done it, and it's the last chance for the sixth, the youngest member of the group, to to do, to, you know, to, for him to do the dare. Um, so they all get into the car and they they drive, and, they, and and it all goes horribly wrong. There is a horrible crash, and a woman and two children are killed. So their golden future. Is just disappearing before their eyes. Um, and and they, they, they decide that instead of all of them taking the blame and going to prison for the next 10 years, only one of them will. One will say that he or she mm. was in the car at the time alone, right? And she, so she, she'll take the rap for the group. But when she comes out of prison, they will all owe her one favour. Anything she asks. I like that. <laughs> Whenever she asks it, they'll have to pay her back. So that's that's the conceit that, of the story.
0: That's a great setup.
2: Yeah, I like that. A lot
1: of, a lot of uh, I'd be stressed out to what I would ask for my favors. You know, you know <laughs> how, how is this? We could really do with a Chinese meal with rain outside. Get someone to bring me some food. Wasting my that's wasting favors. It's going
3: to be worse than that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Emma, um, what, what was the last book that you read?
3: Oh, no, this is embarrassing. We're <laughs> all... Okay, it was a Georgette Heyer. Friday, I think it's called something like Friday's Child. So Regency Romance. Okay. And I've never thought of reading Georgette Heyer, but I've been seeing my fellow crime writers, people I know and respect on Twitter, talking about how great they are. Mm-hmm. So i i probably give it a go. And actually... They are quite fun. Um,
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, there's nothing wrong with the bit of it. They are, you know, the dialogue.
3: They're they're quite clever. They're cleverly written. They're they're, they're fun,
2: yeah.
1: I think there's a lot of pressure to read, you know, literally classics, and there's nothing wrong with reading a bit of escapism. You know, easy reading sometimes just to recharge. You know, you're reading batteries sometimes. So that's fine. (laughs)
3: Georgia, Um, A.M., Friday's Child. What
1: about the last film that you watched?
3: Oh, God, this is embarrassing too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no! um, and I can't remember the name of it, but it had that big handsome bloke um oh lord i'm I'm so hopeless. It was about um genetic um a, a genetic experiment that went horribly wrong that resulted in an albino gorilla growing to monstrous size it's rampage
0: rampage with the rock <laughs> That's <it>. the rock <laughs> the big handsome
1: guy <laughs>
0: rampage. was it good? <laughs>
1: Yes, <laughs> uh, I've got that on my Netflix list. I've not watched it. What's yet he called? What's he called? The Rock. Dway- Dwayne
0: yeah, the Johnson. Rock. Dwayne Johnson. Yeah, yeah. yeah I uh-huh. like him. Uh, and uh, the last TV show.
3: Oh no! <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of addicted to Modern Family at the moment. All right, okay. oh, you know, <laughs> so that's ready. good. It's just it's just twenty minutes. Yeah, yeah. I can yeah. put it on while I'm making dinner. And it's just so heartwarming and fun. And yeah,
1: yeah no, I've I've I, have, I, have, I have like a nice easy twenty-minute watch show. You can just put on whenever and just you know yeah, you have to sit no, down don't watch crime that.
3: drama; they're too stressful.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. And the uh, the very last thing we do is a quick fire, either or. So there's no right or wrong answer apart from one. And the first one is uh, romance or crime. Crime.
2: Um,
0: TV or cinema. Cinema.
1: Uh, a fancy restaurant or a takeaway.
3: Fancy restaurant.
0: And uh, last one: uh, real book or e-book? Real, real book.
1: Well, so that is the wrong answer. Uh, yeah, Tarek doesn't okay. like that it.
3: answer. Oh, I, I read e-books as well. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: I take that's fine then. <laughs> oh, that was a lot of fun and. Quite interesting what she was saying about the fact that back in the day, you know, the kind of perceived notion was that men wouldn't read crime novels written by women. I had to hide the hide the surname, I had to hide the first name.
0: Yeah, it, it's it's odd, <laughs> but you know, like you say, back in the day, but I think it, it probably it's still persists now. And not. you're right, I, yeah, probably it, still people who think that way. It is it's a, it's an odd thing to think that that people think that women can't write crime or something just because they're women. It's a woman. <laughs> You know, when you think of some great great, well, even things like Agatha Christie going back you know, <laughs> one of the most famous crime writers ever um,
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a strange and it's a, it's, a, it's in some ways it's kind of a letdown when a kind of publisher has that view because, you know I mean, I'm sure they've got the data and stuff to support what they're saying, but you kind of want them to be the ones changing that if that is the case you want them to be leading the way
0: and also i do wonder about these things these data points that that they have because it's the sort of thing that is like if it's not been tested then of course your data will keep saying the same thing to you yeah exactly uh, um,
1: exactly someone has to go out there and change it exactly yeah. yeah
0: exactly um but anyway, all her books are now Sharon Bolton, which is good to say. And her latest is The Split. So um, you can pick that up now. It, uh, it's definitely worth picking up. But thanks a lot to Sharon for uh, taking the time to come on to the podcast. Really enjoyed that. Um, and who have we got on next week, Tarek?
1: Well, next week we have a, a rather interesting guest. We have Helen Lederer, who uh, a lot of people may know as Katrina from Absolutely Fabulous, the BBC One a comedy show from back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also written a couple of books. She's written a number of scripts. She's written stand-up. She's yeah. done a lot of writing a, a lot a lot oh, of a different way.
0: yeah exactly a, a, a lot of variety in terms of writing and you know it it was really interesting speaking to her about how that differs you know how you writing a stand-up show differs from writing a novel and and a a column and things like that you know how how she structures these different things. And I also chapter a lot about the Comedy Women in Print Prize that she set up, which, you know, going back to what we were saying about um, the whole SJ thing and, and women writers, you know, it is important that awards recognize this. And, and it's another way of, of, of getting these books into the minds of people so that they then pick them up and, and try them out. Um, and it's had some uh, had some really great winners as well. So it's a really interesting and fun episode as well. She's uh, really good fun to speak to. So um, please do tune in for that one.
1: And as always if anybody has any questions or comments they can get in touch by sending us an email which is podcast at rightgear.co.uk or a tweet to at right underscore gear on the Twitter machine.
0: Yeah and uh, as ever if you enjoyed the episode please do give us a quick rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast app you use because it helps us climb the rankings and keep getting great guests onto the podcast. But otherwise, have a great week, stay safe, and uh, we'll speak to you next week.
1: See you next week. (laughs)